This is the Birth of Venus podcast, and I'm your host, Rich Cusslin, bringing you the little gems I've discovered right under the surface. This is part two of a three-part podcast entitled The Treasure That Is Literature, Rereading for Self-Discovery. In part one of this podcast, I related that there were three self-discoveries that I gleaned from a single rereading of Middlemarch. One, as a young man, I read myself into the young idealist, Dorothea. She yearns to epitomize a fantasy of holy scholarship that discovers secrets of higher being, embodied, so she thinks, in Kasaubin, who becomes her husband. Quote, Here was a man who could understand the higher inward life, and with whom there could be some spiritual communion, nay, who could illuminate principle with the widest knowledge, a man whose learning almost amounted to a proof of whatever he believed. End quote. I saw myself in precisely the same way, intensely focused upon my esoteric studies no other student I knew had the least interest in, like Dorothea, and idolizing several scholar instructors who were not hacks like Kasaubin. Unlike Dorothea, I had a bit more on the ball intellectually than Eliot gave her, but at 18 I conjured her what I had, and in so mistakenly imagining her to be like me, I admired her most fervently. I worshipped. I was probably worshipping myself. But upon rereading, Dorothea, I find now, is a harmless creature, perhaps even well-intentioned, but blinded by an obsession with her own spiritual yearning. Yet while she yearns, she never seems to act, preferring instead a state of passive recalcitrance. I recall wondering why she had the nickname Dodo. What a silly girl! I wondered... Was the younger me congruent with the Dorothea I now saw? To a goodly extent, I am sure of it. Unbelievably, I had totally missed the gag factor. She threw over a handsome, vibrant, steady, reasonable, intelligent, caring, and wealthy young man who had begged for her hand for a withering, gray, dilettante, thirty years her senior, who could not even give her a good roistering. Yikes! The idea is totally vomit-inducing to me now that I am Kasaubin's age, but at age 18, I thought nothing of it. Was her motivation all the while to avoid sex? Did she finally give in when Ladislaw's sexual inevitability proved insurmountable to her? Neither of these questions would have ever occurred to me at age 18. Talk about innocence. <laughs> Two, Dr. Tertius Lydgate enters the novel promising great advances in medicine. He dies at 50, having failed to achieve anything of note other than, quote, leaving his wife and children provided for by a heavy insurance on his life, end quote. At 18, I had only the most abject spite for him. I remember asking incredulously, how was it possible for a talented man of high ideals to fail? Lydgate must have been the progenitor of his failure, for it was certain to me then that the world was just, that talent was always rewarded, that ideals were achievable, that greatness was in the palm of one's hand for the taking, and that failure was the product of a weakness of will, a flaw in the person. To the eighteen-year-old me, the man who was not John Galt was Biff Lohman. 
Twenty years after I first read Middlemarch, and twenty years before today, I had achieved, if not none, but then very few of the high-minded goals I had set out, seemingly so resolutely, to achieve. As mirthfully as one might put it, I had become the sadder but wiser girl Meredith Wilson had Robert Preston croon about. So it came as a shock and a powerful intoxicant to read, around the age of forty, George Orwell agree with my sentiment at the time that, quote, a man who gives a good account of himself is probably lying, since any life, when viewed from the inside, is simply a series of defeats, end quote, from All Art is Propaganda. Surely the 18-year-old, who would have disinherited the 38-year-old me, did not know this, and the 58-year-old would forgive them both their pitifully limited understanding. Eliot did not give Lydgate the chance to renew and overcome. Where the writer fails, her character is in the aspect of a male life that was unknown to her and is, in fact, poorly known by men even now. Daniel Levinson, in The Seasons of a Man's Life, a study of transitions in the lives of men, writes, quote, Those who betray the dream, like Lydgate, in their twenties, will have to deal later with the consequences. Those who build a life structure around the dream in early adulthood have a better chance for personal fulfillment, though years of struggle may be required to maintain the commitment and work towards its realization. However, even after the midlife transition, which usually comes in the fourth decade of a man's life, some men are able to turn things around and yet achieve a full life in later years which fulfill the, quote, imagined drama in which he is the central character a would-be hero engaged in a noble quest, end quote. Now, a decade older than Tertius at his fictional death, I have fulfilled many goals and ideals which, as a young man, I had set for myself, and altogether in a wiser, more satisfying, intelligent, and compassionate way. Poor Tertius never had the chance, because Eliot did not give it to him. In another imagined world, he might have turned it around, as did I. Such a reversal is, in fact, the premise of a comic novel I have just completed. But the 18-year-old me, so convinced of his omniscience, could, of course, never have known any of this. The 38-year-old would only barely consider it, yet think it impossible. The 58-year-old would prove the both of them entirely erroneous. I'll continue this podcast with part three. Stay tuned. You've been listening to the Birth of Venus podcast, and I'm your host, Rich Kusla. Thanks for listening.